Ladies and gentlemen, welcome wrestling fans worldwide to Knoxville and the Great Smoky Mountains for the Ron Fuller Tennessee Studcast. Six feet nine inches tall, 265 pounds. This historic podcast from one of the most respected and successful wrestlers and promoters will follow the footsteps of the largest and oldest wrestling family on the planet. Listen to what I'm saying. That's right. Bring that camera in here a little bit closer. Through 93 years and four generations. The stud has arrived. Old school or new fan, this unique broadcast will educate and captivate as Ron details decades of professional wrestling's growth with truly unforgettable stories. I want those people out there at home to hear the stud. Sit back and enjoy the ride with the Tennessee stud. The Tennessee stud. You will learn that name, you will remember it. And now, the stud is here. All right, here we go. Welcome in, everybody. It is David Summers hosting another studcast with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller. It's the story of wrestling in America as told by the stud, whose family started the profession 100 years ago. Now, we step back into the ring, back into time. We get hooked up with the Tennessee stud, Ron Fuller in the Great Smoky Mountains of Tennessee. What's going on up there, Stud? Oh, geez, man, beautiful day. Been great here. Weather's just unbelievable, man. I've forgotten how beautiful it is. Uh, well, nights are in the sixties, highs are in the high seventies. You know, just uh, seems almost like fall, and uh, it's not there yet. So you know, <laughs> I haven't been down there in Florida for all those years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that humidity, I guess the humidity here, it sometimes might hit 50%. Yeah, yeah. You know, might go to 50, but, uh, you know, you didn't get much, much, uh, much. there's not a lot of sweating going on here in this part of the country. Yeah, pretty soon you're going to have to keep your Mr. Rogers sweater near the door. Yeah. <laughs> well, that might be the case, man. No kidding. Hey, hey, by the way, this week, I don't even think we hit 85, which is a blessing in Southeast Alabama because – We've had some sweltering days, but I think the literally the warmest day this week is going to be 84. So we'll we'll take that. And hey, let me throw in a mention for our good friend Charlie Platt, who has not long ago been on the show with us here at my home in Webb, Alabama, and has been doing fine. But he just had a little stint in the hospital, stud. Yeah, he did, man. Uh, in fact, I talked to him uh, quite a few times, and he had a he had a bout with a parasite, man, of all things. Wow. Man. So, he, you, you know, know he, uh, he deals with cattle, so I, I wondered if it was yeah. associated with they cattle. They think that's it. They think wow. uh, because he's been around so many of the cows on that big uh, ranch that he works on, yeah, that, uh, that uh, parasite got him. Yeah. So, uh, you know, he was pretty close to dying, I thought, man. Uh, so, but uh, I know he's doing well now, and uh, Charlie, if you're listening to us out there, man, uh, we're glad to have you back. Uh, yeah. I thought, I thought we were going to lose him, man. He was He was really in bad shape. Charlie is a treasure in the Wiregrass area and in the wrestling profession, uh, especially in this area, because he spent a lot of time on radio and on TV. So at some point, when we when we definitely know he's feeling better, let's talk with him about kissing those cows on the face. Yeah, no kidding. So I whatever, think it's what he's been doing. Whatever he's been doing. Yeah, I don't, I don't, don't do that, Charlie. <laughs> yes. Don't kiss any more of those cows. Hey, we're glad he's better. And Charlie, you know you've been in our thoughts and prayers, and, and a lot of listeners uh, to this studcast 
as well. And so we, we, I saw the note on Facebook the other day, and I felt a lot better about that. I had sent him a text, and he re- responded. I, I felt great that he even wanted to respond to a text. And I'm glad that you've talked to him also. So we're glad to know that, that Charlie's doing better. Hey, Stud, listen, a lot of people consider your Studcast as pure wrestling gold. It just seems like your life story is so fascinating. It changes every week. Last week, you literally blew me and thousands of others away with your story about promoting a tough man contest, and you had never seen a tough man contest. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's pretty crazy, you know. So I guess I found that pretty early, man. Uh, in my early 20s, I'd say, uh, when I first began wrestling, that uh, there were other ways to make a living, you know. And I, I tried to sell in real estate, uh, making and selling portable septic tanks. And, uh, uh, gosh, I did a whole lot of things, man, when I was young and first started wrestling. I didn't know if I really wanted to become a wrestler or stay a wrestler. And uh, I tried a lot. So, uh and, uh, and all those things that I did early in life, they kind of served me well, man, the rest of my life. And uh, and then when I discovered hockey in the, in the real world, the real business world of security, man, with mm-hmm. ADT dealership, mm-hmm. uh, things really change. Uh, but my family's business of professional wrestling has always, man, been my favorite, undoubtedly. Well, speaking of that, we're getting close to the end of the summer in 1978, your southeastern Knoxville territory was still the best small territory literally in the world of wrestling, and you had taken a great risk and opened another territory. In March of 1978, 500 miles south of Tennessee. So how did you feel after the first six months of operating your second territory, southeastern Gulf Coast, compared to how you felt in 1975 after the first months of operating southeastern knoxville well that's a that's a good question you know i mean uh, wow they're two different animals that's for sure uh, you know i have to admit it it took me almost two years to start to make a profit in tennessee uh, i really didn't know that i was going to make it be successful or not i was really close to being uh, totally broke uh, several different times but uh in less than six months down there in the gulf coast man we started to make a profit it was crazy so uh so obviously it was a lot easier for me in 1978 but i gotta consider i was a lot wiser and i had a lot more experience uh, with three years under my belt in the sport as a promoter and a wrestler and then you know things were going great man in both those territories in 1978 uh, the wrestlers were happy the booking was solid, man, as could be. And the fans were filling the buildings, man, in both territories. Life was good. But but as you said, Dave, in my life, uh, things were changing almost every week. Seems like it's done that most of my life. And uh, so uh, in this podcast, we're going to continue to focus on what we normally do here. Uh, but we're going to begin to take a look into the future a little bit. We're going to touch on what was happening in the other two territories in the state of Tennessee, something I never rarely talk about. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the one on the far side of the state over in Memphis was partially owned by my father. And the one in Nashville uh, was started by my grandfather back in the 1930s. So, you know, uh, there's uh, basically three territories in the state of Tennessee, which is pretty amazing. I don't know that any other state in the country ever had anything like that go on. Mm-hmm. And uh, this had been that way for quite a while. So changes there. And uh, 
along with other complications, uh, you know, uh, they're going to lead to the beginning of the worst period of wrestling in my life. Uh, and that's going to be coming up in future stud cast. Hmm. And in this stud cast, we're going to still, uh, we're going to be in this booming 1978 period, but in 1979, man, uh, it's going to test my will and belief in my fellow man. What happens to me in 1979 with the wrestling. It really sounds kind of odd, kind of scary, Stud. So things have been running really smoothly in the transition to two territories. So I can't wait to hear the things that are ahead. But for now, where do we ride today? Well, we're going to man go into another great card in the southeastern Knoxville. Uh, it's headed by a Russian chain match. Uh, it's got title matches. It's got gorgeous George Jr. with a mystery partner. Uh, and then we're going to dissect... Uh, Another great TV show there, the one that promoted this Knoxville Coliseum card. First Coliseum card in quite a while in the summer of 1978. In five weeks, I think it was at this point. And on Friday night, August 11, 1978, we're going to talk about a great card. Then we'll talk about the results of that card and the attendance uh, as the summer was winding down. As you said, we're getting close to the end of the summer of 78. We'll also begin to take our first look into the future uh, and where it all started, man, in the upcoming uh, disastrous southeastern Knoxville in 1979. Wow. The territory, my territory, my company exploded, man, basically, and not in a good way. So then we're going to ride (laughs) south, uh, this one again, to another uh, remarkable southeastern uh, in that territory down there that was just doing remarkably well. And uh, then we're going to be uh, fast catching, uh, catching with the northern one. That southern territory was uh, getting as big as the northern territory within six months' time. And uh, we'll talk about the overall attendance figures there. Uh, we're also going to talk about the TV there. We're going to get out of Mobile in this episode, and we're going to return to Dothan, Alabama. Uh, in fact, we're going to talk about Dothan's card on the same night that this big Knoxville card was running on August 11th in 1978. And Dothan, man, had a great card as well. It had a lights-out match. It had two title matches. And for the first time ever, it was going to have a TV championship match in a major arena. So we'll discuss the TV that promotes that card, the results of the matches, and the attendance. And, mm-hmm. and then we're going, to sh- we're going to shoot, if we can get there, Dave, for not one, but two learning tree questions at the end of this one. <laughs> All right. I hope you haven't bitten off more than you can chew. It sounds like you've definitely loaded the wagons again, stud. So I hope you can get it all in this stud cast. We better come out of the shoot running. All right. If you've got any chance of covering all that, you know, we got to get on this thing. So what was the card? Let's start in the Coliseum for Knoxville, Friday, August 11th, 1978. Well, this one opened with Ted Allen versus a local wrestler, a guy named Rick Connors. Rick Connors ended up training some pretty darn good future wrestlers, man. Uh, he was a talented guy, a pretty darn good wrestler, do a little shooting, uh, great amateur background. And like I said, he trained some pretty good wrestlers, man, in the 70s and 80s. Uh, Rip Smith and Kevin Sullivan were in a tag match with gorgeous George Jr., and Gorgeous George had a real surprise as his mystery partner. And then there was a Southeastern Championship, no DQ match between the champion, Mongolian Stomper, 
managed by Gorgeous George Jr. and the man who had sent Don Carson packing last week, my brother, Robert. Also on that card, man, there were new Southeastern Tag Champions, Jimmy Golden and Bob Root. And they had finally won the titles with the help of uh, their manager, Jimmy Golden's father, Bill Golden. And they were given the former champions a return match with Jimmy's father in their corner, but Ron Wright was going to be barred from ringside, not going to be there. So the main event was the long-awaited Russian chain match between the great Malenko and the fan favorite down there in that part of the country in the Knoxville area, Ronnie Garvin, man. Wow. Hey, listen, that's another great card, even though Don Carson was gone. So obviously you had your hands full on a TV show that was set to promote this one. How did that go? Well, Les told me later that it was a great opening segment to the show. And, uh, you know, obviously I wasn't there. I was down there in uh, Dothan and uh, handling the TV in southeastern Gulf Coast. And uh, Les said he opened that one, this this program here that we're going to be talking about, the TV show by himself. And he ran down, uh, obviously, another great TV lineup. And then when the cameras backed away behind him on the big set was a still shot of Jimmy Golden and Bob Root being presented the tag belts after their win the night before. So the show off to a great start, man. Uh, Les invited out the new champions, Bob Root, Jimmy Golden, and Jimmy's father was still there, Bill Golden, and he came with him. So, uh, and uh, Les told me that he set a celebration off in the studio, man. As uh, You know, it'd been a long time since Condry and Hickerson had lost, and uh, fans were really Glad to see another tag championship team other than that team, especially since Ron Wright was managing them. And uh, so he said the celebration was set off, man, and uh, and they came out in their wrestling tights. They had their belts around their waist, and they headed to the set. <laughs> so they watched the video from the night before with Jimmy's father's hair at stake in that match the night before. And uh, not only did uh, Bill save his own hair, but he kind of won the belts for his team in a way. Uh, Ron Wright was trying to get into the ring to save his boys. And uh, Bill went around, tackled him from behind, held him on the concrete. And, uh, and uh, Jimmy Golden and Bob Root got it done, man. And the studio fans loved it, man, as far as what the end of the match was. And I'm sure all those people at home loved it just as well. You know, then uh, let's – Let's finish the video with him. And uh, then he asked if they were prepared to give Ron Wright and his team a return match for the belts. And so, you know, and uh, that was probably an odd question for him. Les said they weren't ready for that. So they asked Les why, you know, and why he asked that question so soon, you know. <laughs> uh, you know, so Les said, uh, because Ron Wright has already contacted Don Curtis about it this morning. <laughs> he had overheard a call <laughs> in which Ron Wright's trying to get himself and his boys a return match already. So then they kind of, you know, they were a little concerned about it. And they said, you know, we really hadn't thought about it yet. Said we just won the belts last night, you know. I mean, well, that's not something we had even talked about or thought about. So then they thanked Jimmy's father for his confidence in him because that's basically what he had done on the last show for those people that got to see that 1978 show. Uh, they, you know, they thanked uh, Bill for his confidence in him, and Bill really showed a lot of that, put up his own hair. And uh, if his boy if his boy lost and Bob Roop lost, he would have had his head shaved, and I'm sure he wasn't looking forward to that. But uh, 
And then they asked Bill, you know, about this question about this return match. You know, how soon, in your opinion, Bill, you know, because he helped him win the championship. He was he was really a part of this little deal. And uh, so they kind of turned it over to Bill. Well, what would you do, you know, about a return match? So Bill told them, according to Les, Bill said, uh, you know, since you guys have worked so hard to win the belts, uh, that he said, I feel you have every right to dictate under what the circumstances are here, uh, when you and how you're going to defend them. Yeah. You no. Know? Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, and he suggested that since Ron Wright had been at ringside every time his team had defended the belts, why didn't they demand that Condry and Hickerson have to give up their manager to get a championship return back? <laughs> So, wow, the crowd popped, man. <laughs> They're like, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. So, and then he went on, you know, and he said, you know, Jimmy and Bob, uh, you all should, uh, yeah. he said, uh, you, ought to, you ought to keep me in your corner <laughs> so that the other team can kind of see what a rotten deal you and Bob have had, man, <laughs> of having them having Ron Wright and you not having somebody mm-hmm. to to, to, to even up the odds. And he said, uh, you know, and, and then he says, I'll tell you what, because he said, I kept thinking on it. And he said, you know, I think if, uh, if Ron Wright don't like that deal, he said, well, then don't give him a return match. Wait the 30 days that you could, you're entitled to it before you give him a return match. So wow, the studio crowd, they loved old Bill. They were like, wow, this guy's good. Right. You know, and uh, so then Jimmy and uh, Bob and Bill, uh, you know, they they kind of, uh, you know, kind of talked about it, muttered about it a little bit. And um, bang, they got up and left and went to the ring. They were in the first match, first live match of the show. So there they were with their belts on. Uh, so it was a great way to start the show. So Ron Wright, as soon as the match started, came screaming to the set, Les said, and he had his his former tag champions with him. And they were demanding to know who gave Bill Golden the right to make decisions for his son and Bob Root. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so Wright said, uh, not only did Bill Golden keep his hair the night before, he said, he's obviously getting into my hair now. You know? <laughs> so, so Rob, who was upstairs in the control room, said, Les popped, you know, Les popped <laughs> the people at home did, you know. He popped everybody. He said he suggested, you know, to Ron Wright, he said, you know, Bill, Bill, did, Bill Golden didn't really have to do too much to get in your hair and cause you a problem, did you, Ron? Because <laughs> Ron didn't have much hair. <laughs> so Rob said even the director of the show, Bill Kincaid, popped on that one. He broke up with that one. So, <laughs> so Les is having some fun at Ron Wright's expense. And, uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, Rob said Ron Wright went nuts then, and he started suggesting uh, that everyone out there was against him and his team and things were going now, he says, to get very dangerous. He goes that, huh. you know, and he says is in his old Ron, you know, I got powerful friends here, you know, dangerous people <laughs> that could do harm to anybody who don't like me anyway, you know. <laughs> he says, uh, that Bill Golden, Jimmy Golden, uh, they don't know what they're dealing with, you know, so. Best quickly, you know, he tried to put a stop to that line of conversation. You know, he, mm-hmm. he's making these threats. So, yeah. so he asked right if he decided to accept the offer Bill Golden had just made for a quick return match with his men. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he says, you know, if, uh, if you don't show up at ringside with them, they can get a return match next Friday night probably. 
So, hmm. so right, getting more upset by this as, uh, as the time went on, you know. He screamed, yes. He goes, I'll, I'll take that offer. You know, and, and he says, uh, you know, <laughs> him letting him go. He said, I'll let my team go it alone. They're, they can do it. They're, they're good. They're, they're the best there is. And, uh, and he said, but I'm not going to be responsible for what happens to the Goldens. I can tell you that next Friday night. Hmm. So uh, all that mattered to him, man, was basically his team wearing those tag belts. It was pretty simple. So the three of them left the set just as Jimmy Golden and Bob Root was winning their first match of Southeastern Tag Champions. So then Root and the two Goldens, they got the word from Les when they came back to the set to do the first interview that Ron Wright had accepted their offer of a quick return match for his team if he didn't show up to manage them the next Friday night. So Les also advised them of the threats of injury from good old, from the good old Tennessee dog whooper, you know, (laughs) he done threatened them, man. Uh (laughs) So so next thing up was Rob and, uh, you know, he started the next segment at the set with Les and, uh, he took. He watched. Uh, he took a final look, man, via video from the night before of Don Carson's long southeastern wrestling history coming to a finish, man. He, he had beat old Don Carson in the loser leave, and Don Carson was finally gone. So, so that was followed immediately by his opponent the next Friday night, who was the Mongolian Stomper, uh, live in the studio, getting a. Uh, a brutal victory. I mean, wow. Uh, Gorgeous George was very unhappy. He really was pretty tight with John, Don Carson, you know. And uh, so uh, Gorgeous George was pretty unhappy, and he, he turned his stomper on. And, uh, gosh, when stomper got in the right frame of mind, he was pretty brutal, man. And uh, then uh, Rob and Gigi, they made the show's second interview because Rob was going to be wrestling against the stomper for the stomper's belt this mm-hmm. time. Gigi obviously is going to be in in the Stompers' corner. Personality profile was with Ronnie Garvin. Uh, Rob said he was heavily taped, and he and Les watched the video from the match the night before, where Garvin was wrestling the Stomper the night before for the Southeastern Championship. He had him beat in the middle of the ring, and Boris Malenko, who had already had a match, brought his chain down to the ring, and uh, he just got in the ring and attacked Garvin with his chain, man. They busted him up pretty big time and uh, bloodied him up good. And, uh, and, and in the process, he kept Garvin from winning the Southeastern Championship because the referee disqualified the stomper. So rather than beat the stomper like he was going to do, then he got disqualified and that kept Garvin from winning the title. So it cost Garvin in more ways than one. And, uh, you know, but, uh, you got to you get pretty be assured that Garvin was uh, pretty upset about that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, and I think, uh, you know, knowing uh, Malenko, he probably had in mind that uh, Garvin now is going to be mad enough that he's going to call Don Curtis. And by <laughs> golly, I'm going to get my Russian chain match. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so the matches, you know, the, that they, the fans had been wanting to see. And since Malenko had arrived in Southeastern months earlier, he'd been there for months. He'd never gotten his chain match with Ronnie Garvin that he'd been wanting, and he finally got it. So it was the first ever Russian chain match was booked for Southeastern Wrestling on that TV. Then the great Malenko brought his chain to the ring for the next live match. 
But the referee man didn't take any chances this time. The referee would not start the match until he got a second referee to come to the ring and take Malenko's chain back to the dressing room where he couldn't use it. So um, Malenko didn't need it, though, I'll tell you that. Uh, instead of uh, using his chain, he just stomped the life out of his opponent, as usual, man. <laughs> Went around that stomping that body from head to toe mm-hmm. all the way around. Wow. Uh, and then put him in his Russian sickle. Wow. I mean, he, he knew how to hurt people. So then Ronnie, Ronnie Garvin finished the TV show with another brutal beating of his opponent. Like for those people who watched that, that July 29th, 1978, uh, only original Southeastern TV show left from that time frame. Uh, last week, you saw what Ronnie Garvin was all about in the last match last week. And, uh, Rob said that it was worse this week. <laughs> he beat this guy even worse than the last week. And uh, and if fans want to see what I'm talking about, uh, they can go to ClassicContinentalWrestling.com. That's the streaming channel. And uh, they can see this thing for free. And, uh, mm-hmm. wow, you get an idea of what Ronnie Garvin was all about. So, mm-hmm. Ronnie, t- you know, Rob, like I said, told me later that Ronnie uh, – his beating was even more painful looking on this TV than it was on the one that, that uh, everybody can go and see what it looked like. Wow. I don't know how that could be, Ron. I was, I was almost unable to watch that actual 1978 Southeastern TV show, the last match, with Ronnie Garvin punishing his opponent. Everything he did really had to hurt big time. That was obviously another great TV. <laughs> oh, boy. What happened six days six days later in the Coliseum? Let's hear about that. Well, Rick Connors got a win over Ted Allen. Uh, Rip Smith and Kevin Sullivan got a win over Gorgeous George Jr. Okay, Stud, so who was the mystery partner for Gorgeous George Jr.? Well, I guess you, this is – I, I, uh, I wasn't going to really put, put this out there, but uh, – he was called the masked jawjacker, right? <laughs> <laughs> right? And I mean, uh, we'd had a jawjacker. There was a masked jawjacker, man. Yeah, I think the there... jawjacker that had been there, uh, obviously, was Bob Armstrong. Yeah. Uh-huh. But uh, Gorgeous George making fun, I guess, of Bob Armstrong, possibly. But, you know, the strange thing about this masked jawjacker uh, is he looked a whole lot like somebody that had lost to lose or leave town. The oh, match. really? The now? week before, right? <laughs> okay. So, All right. So, I'm not going to say uh, who I'm talking about, but uh, I think fans will pick up on it. Uh, mm-hmm. You know what? What a slap in the face to Bob Armstrong, man. To, yeah. to call a guy that. Right. So, so then in the next match, uh, Rob won the Southeastern Championship from the Mongolian Stomper, and the match ended when the referee got knocked down and. Uh, Stomper, uh, full Nelson robbed, and Gigi jumped up on the apron. Uh, he reached in his along his pants suit there, man, and uh, he got what he needed to to put Rob away. And when he started to hit him, Rob ducked, and uh, Stomper took the shot, and he also took the loss, man. Rob got the pin uh, while beating the Stomper for the belt. It was something big time. So Rob said the t- Southeastern Tag Championship match, the next match was a truly outstanding match. He said uh, Ron Wright didn't come to the ring with his team, and uh, Golden and Root looked great, man. He said Jimmy had Hickerson pinned. After he gave him a drop kick off the top rope, uh, Condry was laying out on the concrete floor. 
they had no Ron Wright to pull anything a hat out of the, you know, <laughs> a rabbit out of the hat. And, uh, and it was basically all over until Bob Root stomped Jimmy in the back. And before the referee could count Hickerson out, Root jerked Jimmy up. He pile-drived him. He put Hickerson on top of him. And the referee counted Jimmy out. Uh, Bill Golden started into the ring to help his son, right? And uh, Bob Roop stopped Bill. And he used, man, Roop had one hold that was, wow, it was it was tremendously dangerous and uh, one of the nastiest looking moves in wrestling. And uh, he used that most damaging move, one that nobody had seen since he came to Southeastern. He had never done it to anybody. Uh, he used his extremely dangerous shoulder breaker move, man. And uh, he became famous for it in Florida. He broke a lot of guys' shoulders with it, man. It was a, it was a horrible move. So uh, the way he did it is he jerked up, uh, you know, Bill's not. Bill was in his in his forties, uh, maybe a little bit older, uh, maybe fifty, close to fifty. And uh, so Bob Roop jerked uh, Bill Golden up as he was coming through the ropes, and he threw his body up over his right shoulder. Uh, he had Bill's head facing downward, and then Root dropped down on the one knee with his right eye, man, sticking straight out in front of him, and he let Bill's body go, and so Bill dropped head first, man, shot straight down off of his shoulder, and uh, landed on his right shoulder, all of his weight, mm. Mm. and it landed hard, man, on, the, on Root's thigh with all Bill's weight, man, on mm. the shoulder. Rob said, man, he watched it. He said it was such a shocking sight, Ron. He goes, uh, he said, Bill Golden's body, uh, when it when it went down on his knee, he said it shot back uh, three feet up into the air, uh, you know, off of Bob Roop's thigh. And he said, uh, Bill landed on his face in the ring. Rob said the crowd made that another kind of ooh. Used to get that in Japan mm -hmm. when you did something absolutely devastating to somebody, you might get a ooh out of the crowd. Mm. Rob said the whole crowd, the building was packed. Said the whole crowd went ooh at the same time. Wow, like wow, you know. And Rob said then uh, the building went totally silent, and he said Bill Man was flopping around the ring like a fish out of water. Ooh. Man, he said. He said it, it looked like it had killed him. And they said it looked like it could have killed him. So uh, then Ron Wright suddenly appeared from nowhere in the dressing room. He didn't come to the ring, you know, and he, he said he wasn't. Uh, but, man, when he got to the ring, he jumped in there, Rob said, and he was all over Bob Root, man, kissing him, doing everything but kissing him, high-fiving him, patting him on the back like he was a long-lost friend. Condrian Hickerson <laughs> came in, joined him as well, uh, uh, the belts were handed to him. Bob Roop raised their hands, and all four of them then had to fight their way to the dressing room. Wow. So Can't Rob said it. Jimmy finally got up from Roop's pile driver that he'd given him. And when he did, he looked, and there was his daddy laying still on the mat, man. And uh, so Rob said Kevin Sullivan and Rip Smith were standing by him, and they headed to the ring first. They were the first ones to get there. Hmm. And uh, they started trying to help Jimmy's dad. And then Rob went down also, and, and he said the Coliseum emergency crew joined him. And he said they spent a lot of time in the ring there uh, trying to get Bill up, but they never could. So they brought a gurney, and they put him on the gurney, and they rolled him oh through God. the crowd back to the black curtain at the back of the Coliseum and oh. on into the dressing room. 
Holy cow. All right. Was he really hurt? I mean, it sounds like he was. Well, you know, that's what I asked Rob. You know, I said, you know, what, did he get hurt, Rob? And he goes, uh, he, and I think his, his quote was, you know, you know, Bill, he's like dad. He said he wouldn't let you know if he was hurt. Wow. You know, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, uh, and I'm sure that was everybody. You hurt, you hurt. And, uh, you know, and he, he, he never would say yes. But uh, I think he had a hard time, Jimmy, getting him out of there that night. And uh, yeah. so he said he uh, he couldn't imagine anything that looked that dangerous, not hurting somebody. Rob said he'd never, Rob had never seen it move either. Man. He said, after watching, he said, I can't imagine anybody doing that to anybody and not hurting them. It just, when you see something like that, it just kind of puts chills over you. It's like watching the NFL game when I think it was Joe Theismann yeah. got his leg broke on national yeah. TV, and you just you cringe and you think, "Oh my God, chill bumps!" Like, did it really yeah, happen? You know, it, it's 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 it's, it's scary. It's yeah. just, it yeah. just scares you. Everybody in the stands. I mean, uh, you know, so uh, so it, it was a it was a strange little spot, uh, you know, and. Uh, and I, I'm pretty sure, as Rob said, uh, Bill was hurt worse than he would he would ever t- yeah. say he was. Yeah, I bet. All right. After all that, fans still had the Russian chain match coming, right? Yeah. Imagine that. To- you know, after seeing that, now they've got this Russian chain match coming. And uh, so, uh, you know, Rob said that match was absolutely horrifying to him. <laughs> He said, both guys looked like they were bleeding to death. He said, wow, he'd never seen so much blood. And he said, and to win in, in a cha- Russian chain match, you had to pull your opponent around the ring two times and touch all four of the ring post uh, before you actually mm-hmm. got declared the winner. Mm-hmm. So basically that meant that uh, your opponent had to be almost unconscious before you even began to start to drag him. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You know, so, wow. You know, Rob said it lasted probably 40 minutes and he said, God, it just went on and on and on. You know, he said the crowd was just, they were just amazed. They were just, uh, you know, he said sometimes it got totally silent. Then it would be a pop. Then it would go to silence again. He said it was one of the most grueling matches he had ever seen. I just, I can't imagine what it would be like to get into one of those. So ultimately, who won or was there a winner? Yeah, Ronnie Garvin got the win. You know, he, he pulled, uh, he managed to keep uh, Malenko down long enough to pull him around the ring twice, mm-hmm. touch all the ring posts. Uh, but Rob said, man, neither of them looked like a winner. Yeah. <laughs> they both looked like they had the hell beat out of them. And wow. they had. What a night for fans. So you had to have a humongous crowd with the setup for something like this. Well, the fans have been waiting, man, on this on this match for a long, long time, and the Coliseum sold out. Uh, you know, and, and, and it had, had we'd had many sellouts there, you know, but uh, it, it sold out, and they turned away uh, maybe a thousand fans, and and that's what I, I even called on Monday, following what Rob told me about the crowd. I've called the Coliseum manager, who was a friend of mine, on Monday, and I asked him. I said. Uh, how many people got turned away? And he said, Ron, at least a thousand of them, you know, and he said, so the official count was 5,300. Mm-hmm. 
I think the official count for the me and Harley match in January in April of 1976 was was a uh, 56. Mm-hmm. You know, so you anything over 5,000 in that building could have been a you know they could have cut you off at any time if you yeah. sold over 5,000 seats. So, uh, but, you know, but we had if we had run the match in the amphitheater. Uh, we might have gotten 7,500 out there in the amphitheater because it was outside and yeah. it had all that 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 the mountain mountain of people there basically yeah. Yeah. to be there. But uh, you know, if it had rained, Dave, we might have had only 3,000 too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's hard to say, but still an incredible night. You mentioned we were going to hear something about the other territories in the state of Tennessee in 1978. And how they were going to have some effect on something to do with Southeastern in 1979. So one of the reasons I really love doing this with you, Stud, is because I don't know everything about you and your history. And that's I enjoy hearing that. So what is the story? Just lay all this out for us. Well, I'm going to do a little bit of this for for quite a few weeks here in in preparation for getting to 1979. Uh, So uh, 1979 was the most difficult year for me in my wrestling career. Uh, And the reason I bring this up today is because it was about this time of the year in 1978 that things began to happen. They were going to lead, man, to the wrestling war in Knoxville of 1979. So, you know, we're in late 1978, certain things begin to happen that are going to change everything for me and what I was able to accomplish in Knoxville. So uh, so it's a long side story in a way, uh, but but it was let's just start uh, in in the late summer of 1978 when things began to fall apart for other promoters in the state. and, uh, and then they're falling apart, oddly enough, in the, in the western side of the state, in the central part of the state, was going to affect me in my southeastern Knoxville territory. Not because of anything I was doing wrong, but because of what I tried to do to help them. You know, mm-hmm. so it's a it's a it's a it's a wonder it's a it's not a wonderful story. It's a tragic story for me, mm-hmm. but uh, wow, it has such history to it. So today, let's talk briefly about what I call the Nashville Territory. Let's just start with that. Mm-hmm. Nashville had been home of the original Tennessee Territory that my grandfather Roy Welch established forty years or more earlier than this nineteen seventy eight time frame. Wow, in the day. Wow. Well, he went there in the 30s and started building this giant territory in the South. Mm-hmm. And he ran it for years with just family members and some trusted associates, guys that he knew and trusted. And he placed these people in critical cities, uh, creating these uh, little mini territories, little tiny territories throughout 12 states in the southern United States. Built, it took 30 years. To, to, to build it all. So Roy had managed to somehow hold on to control of the sport and, and not be pushed from the sport or eliminated from professional wrestling. Wow. And that one in itself was quite a feat because people wanted to take your business. When you had a good wrestling business, they wanted to take it over if they could and then, <laughs> and, uh, and then profit from your work. Mm-hmm. Uh, Roy didn't let it happen. 
In fact, in 1948, he was one of the founding members of the original National Wrestling Alliance, the NWA. And uh, by being part of that organization, it helped him solidify his claim to operate professional wrestling in the areas that he had created. And, and not only that, besides that, he also had his ability to personally handle situation with individuals that had little respect for the sport or the men in it. So, so if, if what he did involved with, uh, with uh, this, the Sam Muchnick and all these great promoters mm-hmm. around the, the country in 1948 wasn't enough, he was man enough to handle the rest of it by himself. So around this time in the 1940s, he realized he couldn't handle the continued growth of his company without getting some trusted help, specifically in his office in Nashville. He couldn't do a lot of the bookkeeping, and there was a lot of things that he couldn't do. He could handle the wrestlers. He could handle the booking. He could handle the, the his every bit of his business except for certain pieces of it. So he, he spent time in the 40s finding the right guy to be a partner with him. And uh, that guy turned out to be a guy named Nick Goulas out of Birmingham, Alabama. And so Roy and Nick built a wrestling empire from the 1940s into the 1970s. And by empire, I mean 12 states. They were actually having wrestling matches in 12 states in the South. So uh, Roy began to fade with age. In the late 1970s, his time had gone. Uh, in fact, he's going, he died in uh, 19, uh, 1979. Uh, so my father, Edward Welch, known in the ring as Buddy Fuller, became more involved in the Tennessee Territory. His father started it. He had every right to do that. And, uh, and he also created a relationship with uh, Jerry Jarrett, who was about my brother and I's age, a uh, young guy, lived in Nashville, uh, but uh, spent a lot of time running and trying to help on the Memphis ter- in the Memphis Territory. So my grandfather's original Tennessee Territory was starting to fracture in the late 1970s. It was starting to break into pieces. So by 1978, there was my father and Jerry Jarrett operating in Memphis on, and all the rest of the western side of Tennessee. Nick Goulas was the promoter in Nashville, Birmingham, Chattanooga. And I was the promoter in Knoxville and also along the Gulf Coast. Mm-hmm. So, you know, not so I just want to set the scene here a little bit. I will leave it there today, Dave, but I'm going to continue to set the scene for this 1975 Knoxville war. And at this point, Tennessee, it was basically three different territories. And in our next discussion, we'll talk about the success and the failures of the entities in the old original Tennessee territory and how it was going to directly affect me. Hmm. I think that's cool. I I really love this type of history when you're talking about wrestling, especially. You always give us something different than any other wrestling podcast out there. I mean, any. I can see how this kind of in-depth explanation of the sports history is going to be so fascinating. All right, I tell you what, let's take our break right here. Let's do that. And when we come back, we're going to be riding south into the southeastern Gulf Coast territory. That is coming up next when this Studcast 
continues right here. Hey, stud fans, Ron's novel Brutus has reached another plateau. It's being called the Jaws of the 21st Century. Its reviews are outstanding. You can get it now on his website, tnstud.com, tnstud.com. The book, only $19.99, or the special autograph copy with a special message to you from the author, only $29.99. Both prices include shipping. It is absolutely chilling. Get it before it becomes a movie. When you purchase and finish reading, please remember to send a review to Amazon Novel Brutus and scroll down to reviews. Thanks to everyone that has purchased the hottest thriller in the country. All right, Studcast fans, welcome back in segment number two on this particular episode, number 264, Chain in Tennessee, Lights Out in Gulf Coast which I think is what we're about to hear about now. So where do we head from here, Stud? Well, we're going to start with the card, man. Uh, this time, like I said earlier, in Dalton, Alabama, instead of Mobile. And the Dalton card took place on the same night as this Knoxville event I just described, which was on Friday night, August 11th, 1978. Mike Hendricks and Eddie Mansfield opened the card that night. Mike Stallings wrestled against Norvell Austin. The finals of the TV championship trophy had been won by Tony Charles over David Schultz uh, the week before on TV. And Schultz had challenged him to defend it in some of the main arenas. And this would be the first night for one of those matches. So Schultz versus Charles for the TV trophy and championship was also on the card. The Gulf Coast tag champions, Ricky and Robert Gibson, were defending their belts against the former champions, the Assassins. Their manager, Billy Spears, was barred from ringside for this one. And I was defending my Gulf Coast title as a, against a very capable Charlie Cook, who was a, wow, linebacker for nine years for, for the Pittsburgh Steelers and a pretty darn good wrestler as well. So the last match was an NWA non-sanctioned lights-out match. No DQ, no time limit, anything goes. And in this case... That included karate. So Mr. Goody Two-Shoes, Bob Armstrong, <laughs> was going up against Ron Slinker, who was going to be seconded by me. All right, so it sounds like another great card, no doubt. This one has six six matches compared to the five in Southeastern Knoxville. Three championship matches and a lights-out match. So you got to set it up with great TV. So six days earlier... You did just that with this to promote this card. So tell us about the TV. Well, the show opened up with Tony Charles uh, sitting at the set with Charlie Platt, Gordon Soley. He had won the TV championship the week before. The big old TV trophy was sitting right next to him. And they went back and watched the very end of the match in which he won the television championship from David Schultz the week before. And uh, all the baby faces uh, came out of the dressing room and they all got even put him up on their shoulders, man, uh, while he was still in the ring. And uh, it, they had a tremendous celebration, right? They were there to congratulate him, basically. So uh, when the red celebration from the week before was just about to end on the video, David Schultz comes out to the set. And uh, he, uh, in his own inimitable style, you know, uh, he asked, uh, you know, why they had chosen uh, Charlie Platt and Gordon Soley to show his loss from last week again, right? You know, why is this? Like, you're trying to embarrass me or whatever. 
So uh, no one could answer his question. Neither one of the two commentators could answer his question. Tony's just sitting there, you know. Uh, so, uh, you know, and he said, uh, you know, man. and finally, uh, I think uh, one of the commentators said, well, you know, it's really the choice of the wrestling company. You know, they decide who's going to do whatever. And uh, so then Schultz kind of changed his focus. He put it on Tony Charles. And he asked Tony Charles, you know, uh, he says basically to Charles, uh, you know, you were lucky, man, to win last week. And, uh, and then he started to ask him, uh, when are you going to defend this trophy again? When, 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 when are you going to wrestle somebody for this again? No, so uh, so Tony didn't know the answer. Because <laughs> he said he had just won the trophy. He said, you know, I just won it, man, from you, right? And he goes, uh, you know, I'm going to defend it when the wrestling company tells me to defend it, right? So Schultz asked him, uh, he says, uh, you know, well, how about you, you defending it in the arenas? Not just on TV, but in the actual arenas in the future. So Tony asked Charlie and Gordon. You know, if they or Gulf Coast Wrestling would have a problem if he was to defend the trophy in the arenas. And they both said, well, well we don't think so, right? So so Schultz jumped on it, man. So he got right in Tony's face and he challenged him, man, uh, to defend the TV trophy against me in every arena we're going to wrestle in next week. He didn't ask him for once. And all of them, you're going to wrestle me for the trophy. So Tony being the man he was, and he was a man, he accepted the challenge. Now, so Gordon and Charlie made the match right then, and they added that match to the card. Said, all right, we're going to add that match to every card. You know, so then the, the studio fans obviously loved the idea. So Tony went to the ring. He was live in the first match, and, man, he got another great win. And he did it with another one of those spectacular throws, man, that he was famous for. And then he and David Schultz interviewed about this upcoming TV championship for the trophy matches in all the arenas uh, across the entire southeastern Gulf Coast area. So I went to the set with Charlie Cook, uh, went to the ring for the next live match. And I was going to be defending my belt against him in all the major cities. And I made some nasty comments about how, you know, former football players thought they were wrestlers. But only men like me with legitimate wrestling family backgrounds were going to be champions. You know, this guy will never be champion. He's a football player. He's not a wrestler. So while I was saying all those nasty things about him, Charlie Cook was making some spectacular moves in the ring. And it uh, wasn't long before he got the pin. Before I ran out of words, uh, he got the pin over his opponent. So then the Gibson brothers, Ricky and Robert, they were live on the personality profile, and uh, they watched their win from Mobile of the tag belts from uh, Billy Spears. And uh, Assassins and the big crowd's reaction, man, it, had, it was a great piece of video. Uh, it was just really even better uh, because of the size of the crowd. And they also got a great reaction from the studio audience. That, you know, and the studio audience was just a few feet away from where they were doing the profile. So uh, at this point, Billy Spears takes it upon himself to interrupt the profile. And I think if you remember, Dave, this is the second week in a row somebody came out and interrupted the profile. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so, you know, Spears uh, had to leave his dressing room and he crossed the studio and then he got 
in front of the Gibsons, and uh, he asked the two of them if they were man enough to defend their belts immediately, you know. And, uh, so Ricky took the lead, and, you know, and he answered, and we said, absolutely. But he says, i tell you what, but we'll only do it if you're willing to send your men into the ring alone. And the Spears began to kind of back away then a little bit from that challenge. And uh, when he did, his team left the dressing room and they came across the studio and they got involved in the personality profile. And uh, so uh, when they came, Ricky and Robert, who were sitting in chairs at the beginning of it, they both got out of their chairs. They didn't know what was going to happen at this point. And both Charlie and Gordon were asking everybody for you know, have no problems here. This is the profile. This is not a match. So then uh, both the assassins asked Spears to accept the challenge. They, you know, they said that they, they knew they could beat these punks, mm -hmm. you know, and <laughs> even without you, man. We don't need you to beat these punks, you know. And uh, so <laughs> Spears kind of, he, he, he got into it. He, he, he started smiling, you know. He, you could tell he, he loved his team's confidence. So, you know, and he told the champions, you know, Ricky and Robert, he says, you guys got a deal. He goes, hey, my men think they can get it done, you know, uh, I'll, and, and you're going to give them an instant return match, which means next week you're going to wrestle them for the belts again. He goes, yeah, I won't even come to ringside. I won't come near the ring. Oh, all right. So two challenges made and accepted on the same TV show. It sounds like things were really getting interesting. So now what happens next? Well, the assassins were in the next match. So they went straight to the ring. And while these two guys, uh, Randy Colley and Roger Smith was their actual names. They were a great pair, man. They were both about 300 pounds uh, with their mask on. You could not tell them apart. They looked exactly alike. They loved to bump guys. I mean, just big bumps and slams and suplexes and wow. And they could move like they weighed 200 pounds rather than 300 pounds. Uh, Randy Colley was going to go on to become one of the moon dogs. He's going to become a famous guy. And uh, Roger Smith, uh, we called him the dancing bear because he was so light on his feet. Wow. He's, he's going to have a pretty decent career too, man. Uh, he was as, he was maybe one of the best 300-pounders I have ever seen. So, uh, obviously, they made short work, man, of the guys they were in the ring with. And, uh, <laughs> so then Spears and the Gibson brothers, uh, they got to say have their say about the return match on the next interview for the titles with no Billy Spears in the Assassin's Corner. And then um, – here, here came the good part for the, the fans, man. Mr. Goody Two-Shoes, man, made his appearance. Uh, the last segment of the show started, and the fans were waiting on him, man. And, and he didn't disappoint them. He watched the humiliating defeat of Ron Slinker from the week before uh, in the non-sanctioned karate match where I had to carry the United States karate champion out of the building on my shoulder because Armstrong had just he decimated him. He had destroyed him. Wow. It was unbelievable. Wow. So the, the TV crowd loved that video, obviously, and especially the end of it with me, him over my shoulder, me carrying him out, mm -hmm. you know. And then, uh, and then when I threw um, – <laughs> It was just too, it was just great, and, uh, and so Bob really loved it. Had a great time. Then uh, Ron Slinker watched the video, and uh, 
he watched it in the back with me, and I think he got somewhat embarrassed about it, right? About how badly he got his butt kicked by Bob Armstrong. So when I took him to the ring, he was in the last match on the TV. Uh, boy, I could tell, man, his opponent was in trouble. Slinker was a hell of an athlete. I could not take it away from him, man, and it showed, man. <laughs> and, and needless to say, the last match was a very short one, and Ron Slinker chopped this poor son of a gun to pieces. It was unbelievable. <laughs> so then me and Slinker and Mr. Goody Two-Shoes, Bob Armstrong, we – we lit the studio up, man, talking about the, this upcoming non-sanctioned NWA Lights Out match. <laughs> All right. So, again, I can't pick which TV was the best. I mean, this really balances out nice. You and your brother were really kicking some butt big time. All right. So, what happened in Dothan? Friday, August 11th, 1978. Eddie Mansfield got a win over Mike Hendricks. And this time... Uh, he got it before the 30-minute time limit was out. This was They had a 30-minute time limit match a week before. Time ran out. This time, Mansfield got him right before the 30 minutes. Norvell Austin was in his prime back in those days, man, and he took uh, took the match, man, from a much less experienced Mike Stallings. Wasn't uh, Stallings' fault, Mike uh, Norvell was just a uh, wow. He was he was really, really uh, – he, he had it going. Tony Charles and Dr. David D. you know, Dr. Schultz uh, had a great match, and Tony got him again, man. But the real winner for this one were the fans. Wow, what a match it was. I watched it. Then the Assassins and the Gibson brothers tore the house down. They wrestled for 45 minutes in that hot farm center, man, a time limit draw, uh, right up to the bell rang, man. And, and the Assassins were right. They didn't need Billy Spears in their corner. You know, it was the second match in a row, man, where the fans were the winners. <laughs> wow. Fans were getting a great night. So then I was able to beat Charlie Cook, and, and I really enjoyed the match. And I had never wrestled Charlie before, and I had a lot more respect for him after it was over. Uh, in fact, that night, man, uh, he earned a spot in Knoxville. When he left Southeastern Gulf Coast, I was going to send him to Knoxville. Uh, Mr. Goody Two-Shoes was, again, the man. <laughs> wow. And after the lights went out and they were turned back on, which was the way they signified the NWA that this was a non-sanctioned match, the Marine turned out Ron Slinker's lights. <laughs> and he turned on a big crowd in that Houston County Farm Center doing it. <laughs> and uh, this time, however, I was able to get to him, boy, and and I left. We left Bob laying this time. It was time for another run between Bob and I. All right, it sounds like another really big night match wise. So how how about attendance? How'd you do there? Well, Dave, it was the biggest crowd in Dothan at that and at that point in our wow. in our history. Wow, five thousand three hundred fans, man. Wow, and they all enjoyed themselves immensely. Okay. All right, Ron, we are going to make up the last two weeks. For the last two weeks, no learning tree. So for the first time, you're going to be answering two learning tree questions in one studcast. And here we go. Dwayne Light said, I don't recall seeing Abdullah the Butcher in Southeastern in Knoxville. I love I love this question. Did you ever use him? Was it a liability to use guys like him and Bru Bruiser Brody 
as they always ended up in the crowds. And I can kind of see that now with Abdullah the Butcher. It seems like he was notorious for that. Uh, yeah, so was Brody. Uh, <laughs> Brody was just as crazy as, as Abdullah was. A great question. Uh, and and, uh, and uh, he's a, this guy's a personal friend of mine. I really love him. And uh, Dwayne Light, uh, been friends with him. Uh, and I don't know if I've ever answered a question for him before. So, uh, uh, wow, that's two very famous stars of the sport right there. And uh, and I wrestled both of them on several occasions, and then you're right, uh, Dwayne. Uh, they did like to get close to the fans, <laughs> and 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 when they got close to the fans, there was always a chance that some fan might get injured, you know, uh, because a lot of times they had no idea what they were going to do. Uh, especially, I think Brody more so than Abdullah. Abdullah is going to take his pitchfork out, and uh, he's going to fork you, and uh, you're going to bleed all over everything. Mm-hmm. But jeez, uh, uh, Bruiser Brody is liable to throw chairs, are uh, you through the building? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, so uh, it, it was crazy dealing with those guys. Uh, you know, and there was always a chance that a fan might get accidentally hurt, or somebody would be foolish enough to think that he wanted to put his hands on them. <laughs> that would be the most uh-huh. injured person in the building. For real. <laughs> so, so I wrestled Abdullah several times in Florida. I uh, wrestled him in Atlanta uh, and other places as, as a young wrestler in my first four years of wrestling. Uh, and, and I would call it an experience. Wrestling Abdullah was a true experience. <laughs> and all my matches with Brody were in Japan all of them in 1982. And again, man, they were all experiences very different than what I was accustomed to, mm-hmm. what anybody that was a wrestler was accustomed to. And as an owner of wrestling companies, they didn't have the style of wrestling I was comfortable with, along with their trips into the stands and, mm-hmm. their, and into the ringside of different buildings. There also came a great deal of uh, bloody matches. Man. And, uh, yeah. And, and I'm not saying there was no blood in my wrestling companies. Right. That certainly wasn't true. But I did try to avoid having any of my top guys uh, who wanted to bleed in every match, you know, uh, to feel like that match was a good match. So I, I didn't want to go there with my wrestling companies. Uh, the name on the marquee out front of the building was wrestling, uh, not the next blood match. You know, the saying the bloodbath you're going to see, you know, and it's a wrestling event. Mm-hmm. So many territories were basically destroyed by too much blood. Uh, the Sheik's big time wrestling is a great example of that. Yeah. Uh, I personally like both of those guys, uh, Dwayne, uh, that one that you mentioned here. And, uh, and I had good matches with them, but I wasn't willing really to bring either of them in into my territory and certainly not for a long period of time. Mm-hmm. I always believe great wrestling matches build business. Too much blood kills it. You know, that makes a lot of sense to me, Stud. So uh, I think a good answer on that. So here's the second question. It's from Richard Blunt. He says, how important were referees, announcers, and the commentators to your wrestling companies? And in your opinion, who were some of the best? Wow, it's another great question. Uh, yeah. Let's see. Well, I'll take you. Uh, I'd, I'd say at least two of these three that Mr. 
Bunt, I think is his name, Mr. Bunt, yes. I mentioned, yeah. Yeah. Are, are kind of critical to the success of wrestling companies. So let's start with the one, in my opinion, that isn't critical. And, uh, and that would be the announcers. Uh, now, they're important, uh, but they're not an integral piece of the puzzle that leads to the success in the sport. Uh, Phil Rainey in southeastern Knoxville did an excellent job, I always thought, as an announcer. And so did a guy named Freddie Miller in the Georgia Territory for many years as an announcer. Uh, let's talk about commentators. Commentators on your wrestling show were absolutely critical to success. Uh, they sold your product, and they represented it everywhere they went. They had to know your business and your crews inside and out. Uh, there were so many of them commentators that I admired, man. Wow. Guys who had a strong part in building the business basically from the ground up. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm going to name a few of them, but wow, I'm afraid I'm going to leave some out and I hate to do that. Uh, you know, and this is like off the top of my head, but, uh, Gordon Soley, uh, Lance Russell, Jim Ross and Jerry Lawler. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Gene Okerlund, Charlie Platt, mm -hmm. and a guy named Michael Cleary in Australia that, that when I first started, I thought was a tremendous commentator mm. on, uh, on, uh, uh, on uh, the, the Barnett's pro program. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Tremendous, tremendous. So, uh, but then I, there's one example of what I mean about commentators building or killing your business that stands out to me. And when I started my first wrestling company in 1974 in Knoxville, I had one of the worst commentators that I had ever seen. <laughs> and I'm being very honest. Really? About it. And, uh, Southeastern would have never been the success it was if I had to keep this guy to build it, mm -hmm. to build it for me. Uh, and the guy's name was Big Jim Hess. And uh, he's the commentator I'm talking about. So, yeah. uh, so when I changed television stations in Knoxville in 1975, I not only moved forward a giant step with my TV station production, but I also I moved forward uh, with the man I replaced Jim Hess with. And, uh, and I would not and I could not have had the success I did without Les Thatcher in uh, Southeastern wrestling. He was a perfect example of what a commentator could do for your entire company. Uh, referees, uh, they're, they're, that's the last one on his list. And, uh, and in my opinion, they are the most important part of, of wrestling other than your wrestlers. And, uh, and I can't do justice to them with just a few words here talking about what I think. Uh, and, and, and I did a super stud cast. It's number 31. Uh, the title of it is Referees, the Unsung Heroes of the Ring. And uh, rather than me just put a few words out there, uh, uh, for people that would like to hear way more than a few words, almost three hours of how I feel about those guys, you can go to my website, which is tnstud.com. And uh, and uh, for only two ninety nine, you can you can hear a lot of talk about my feelings for the guys in the striped shirts that had such a impact on professional wrestling all over the world.
Uh, wow. And uh, thanks to both of you guys, man. These are great questions today. And thank you all for so, so much. And uh, and I hope we can keep doing uh, keep doing these. I learned three questions. And I and, uh, hope I don't get too much into the show to where I can't get to them. Hey, that's definitely worthy of mentioning again. Super Studcast number 31. Number 31. Super Studcast number 31 at tnstud.com. I got to tell you, every one of these Studcasts, Ron, covers so many topics with so much wrestling history. No wonder they have become one of the biggest and best wrestling podcasts in the world. No doubt about it. Okay, folks, on Facebook, the Ron Fuller Welch Facebook page is full of friends. So no more can be added to that page. To become friends with Ron, you can go to his Ron Fuller, the Tennessee Stud Facebook page, like him, follow him there, and you automatically become friends with a legend. On Twitter, follow him at Ron Fuller Welch. The website, as we mentioned, tnstud.com. tnstud.com is the website of Ron Fuller Welch. It has everything. Great photos, photo gallery, every stud cast ever done. Every super studcast ever done, 43 of those. And as we mentioned, only $2.99 each, and that's three hours. Shop his stud store for all kinds of souvenirs, personally autographed photos, T-shirts, and his thrilling lion novel called Brutus. Southeastern Rewind on YouTube. It's a great place to find up-to-date info on Ron's fantastic streaming channel at Classic Continental Wrestling com classic continental wrestling.com 43 original southeastern tv shows are now there 23 continental tv shows 38 stud stories 12 great continental classic matches 12 gulf coast matches five stars of the sport four superstars of the past and so much more well over 150 hours now of old school wrestling entertainment and it's only the beginning. You can subscribe now. Subscribe now at ClassicContinentalWrestling.com. ClassicContinentalWrestling.com. It's only $4.99 per month, $39.99 per year. It's the best old school streaming site on the entire planet. Don't miss this special offer right now for a limited time. Get a free one-week trial on ClassicContinentalWrestling.com. Stud, it's a ton to keep up with wow all right so where do we ride next well southeastern knoxville fans uh, man they're going to get another russian chain match well back-to-back russian chain matches uh there's going to be a, a masked jaw jacker who's going to wrestle and manage the mongolian stomper in the next event jimmy golden's out man for the revenge uh, of his father's injury against his former partner, Bob Root. Uh, we're going to talk about the TV that promotes the card next week, the results of that card, the attendance, and much more. And then we're going to return for another episode leading to the great Knoxville Wrestling War in 1979. We're going to try to do a little bit of that every studcast. And in Southeastern Gulf Coast, Mr. Goody Two Shoes, Bob Armstrong, <laughs> back hunting for the Gulf Coast Championship. And, uh, Billy Spears has pulled out all the stops. He's going to put his hair on the line, man, to get his assassins another shot at the Gulf Coast tag belts. And we'll talk about the TV promoting that, the results of that card, the attendance, and much more. And I'd like, as always, to thank everybody for your continued support. And don't forget to tell your friends and neighbors about us and 
Take care of yourselves and others, and may God bless us all. For Ron Fuller in the Great Smoky Mountains, I'm David Summers saying thank you for listening. Find me at davidsummersproductions at gmail.com. This studcast is a David Summers production for Tennessee Stud, LLC. Thanks for joining us today for this historic studcast. The true story continues next week. So full Nelson, your friends, and point them in our direction for another ride with the Tennessee Stud. This is David Summers saying so long from the Great Smoky Mountains.